What's up, everybody? It has been a while since we released an episode of Shared Progress. Obviously, the pandemic has played a huge role in that. As well, we've been reflecting and really taking a critical lens on presenting what we feel are the most prescient conversations. With that, I'm happy to share a conversation I had with Paul Taylor, who is an anti-poverty activist. He is the executive director of FoodShare Toronto, an organization doing incredible work in the space of food justice and solving food insecurity in really creative ways. Paul is a neighborhood guy. Everyone in our community knows him here in the West End of Toronto in the Parkdale area. He's also running for public office. Our conversation, even though it was a year ago that we recorded it, touches on a lot of issues that we're still seeing as this pandemic now is in its third wave. We touched on the intersection of some of the challenges in our society, the role that technology can play in helping or hindering them. So here's our conversation with Paul Taylor. Welcome to Shared Progress. I'm delighted to be here. Paul, I, I just wanted to start with a little bit of a background on your role with FoodShare and some of the other initiatives you're involved with. Yeah, certainly. So I'm the executive director of an organization called FoodShare Toronto. FoodShare opened in 1985. Food banks were popping up all over the country. And FoodShare's role at that time was really to help connect folks in Toronto with emergency food resources. But I think what ended up happening as time went on is FoodShare realized that uh, the types of support we were connecting folks to around food was largely food that was overly processed, high in carbohydrates, high in sodium, high in refined sugar. So not the type of food that's really helpful to people that are already vulnerable and nutritionally vulnerable in particular. So what FoodShare has done is over the last 30 plus years, is we've co-designed with communities across the city uh, food-based interventions, so building community food assets in, in communities. So that's been a really exciting part of that work because it's very much unlike the model of traditional food banking. You know, uh, the most important experience that I ever had was growing up as a poor person, raised by a single mom, a low-income family, on welfare, interacting with the shame that I think is, is bestowed often on people that are materially poor. So that kind of set me on a, an activist path, you know, recognizing that life didn't have to be that way. So I, you know, have spent my life seizing opportunities to make things better for people and help people realize that things can be better whether that's you know working in the downtown east side of vancouver you know an area often referred to as canada's poorest postal code and organizing with homeless folks and street involved folks there to my work some of my advocacy work with raise the rates ways raising the welfare rates in bc working when i lived there for a period of time and uh, chair of BC's Poverty Reduction Coalition. Anti-poverty has been a huge part of my drive. You know, I really want to see us eradicate poverty in this country. Mm -hmm. And I think the last thing I'll say is, you know, I also even took the, 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 the leap to run for federal office in the last uh, federal election to represent my community of Parkdale High Park. I'd be remiss to not 
mention the context that we're in, tragic events in the U.S., and even events we continue to witness here in our own community has raised anti-racism, anti-Black racism to the everyday conversation. And if there ever was a silver lining, it's certainly being inspired by the continued movement and action we see. I know Food Share was a part of a landmark study showing, at least in the Toronto community, and I'm sure in many communities, how food insecurity disproportionately impact Black communities. Can you talk a little bit about that study? I'd love to learn, you know, what's what's come out of it and what potential changes might come forward from that. That's a piece of work that we're really proud of. We partnered with a group called Proof that's based out of the University of Toronto. Their uh, food insecurity research team uh, focused on looking at what kinds of policies, using data to identify the types of policies that will help eliminate food insecurity. The findings just reinforce what so many people already know, that anti-Black racism is so deeply embedded in our institutions, you know, be it policing, the criminal justice system, housing, and food is no different. Mm -hmm. But again, these are realities for many of us. These are realities that we live each and every day. You know, what we learned was that in Canada, uh, through analysis of the Canadian Community Health Survey, Black folks are three and a half times more likely to live, uh, to be food insecure than um, uh, white folks are. We learned that, you know, 12% of white children live in food insecure households. 36% of black children live in food insecure households. There were some other things that I think are, are notable as well that speak to how deeply embedded anti-black racism is in our institutions. One of the things that shocked us, really, was looking at where people get their income who are food insecure. You know, certainly lots of folks who are working, but also folks on social assistance. And we realized through this research that actually Black folks are receiving less across the country in social assistance payments than white folks. Hmm. So we kind of interrogated that a little bit more. So what the research is suggesting is that white folks are more likely to be approved and approved for higher amounts for disability than black folks are. So we have the old age security and the guaranteed income supplement. And research before the research that we had done suggested that once someone becomes a senior and is eligible for those supports, their level of vulnerability to food insecurity decreases quite significantly. This research took a look at how it works for black folks and found that it actually doesn't have the same effect and that it doesn't provide the same protection from that vulnerability that it does for white folks. So I think it also speaks to the need for looking at race-based data, socioeconomic data, and folks who we know are specifically vulnerable. sounds like from the study, what was interesting about it was it controlled for various factors to show that ultimately, you know, anti-Black racism was really at the at the root of, of, of food insecurity. And I'm curious about if, you know, if you could speak to the interconnectedness between all of these aspects, because certainly when we talk about injustice, it spans 
uh, into economic injustice. It, it spans into the ways we are engaging and developing our communities. Where are we at with having these initiatives be collaborative and, and joint efforts? And where do we need to go? One of the things I was reflecting on actually yesterday, you know, it's a common refrain from uh, predominantly white folks is that at least it's not as bad as the United States, mm-hmm. you know, in Canada here. But I don't think we can make that sort of claim when, you know, it appears that at least in the U.S., they're willing to collect race-based data. They're willing to acknowledge um, that there is race-based discrepancy in terms of contracting COVID-19, in terms of the outcomes as a result. But in Canada, we're still fighting for that data collection. Had we been collecting race-based data, it would have it could and and use that data to you know, inform a health equity approach to this pandemic, there would have been very different outcomes. Because, so for example, you know, I go on walks uh, most mornings and I see the bus go by, I see the streetcar go by. I look in those buses and those streetcars and what I'm often seeing is racialized folks, uh, black and brown folks. I'm seeing women predominantly. These are folks who are going off to work that we've declared essential, who are now having to expose themselves to greater risk and often going to workplaces where they aren't provided with the appropriate PPE. You know, there's so many ways that the health equity approach to this pandemic would have shifted things. So for example, also, we rely on technology for so much of the information and the advice that we're receiving from public health officials. And if you don't have Wi-Fi, if you don't have access to the internet, that's not, a, that's not possible. So perhaps a health equity informed approach would say, what we need to do is ensure that everyone during the pandemic has access to the internet, you know, and also recognizing that it's a privilege to physically distance. So even once we have the advice, it's a privilege to follow the advice. You know, if you live in a homeless shelter, physical distancing is, is near impossible. If you, if you have to share an elevator, a laundry room, a laundromat, if you have more people living in the home than there are beds, physical distancing becomes difficult. So it seems that the, the pandemic has brought about, and for me, reinforced uh, the fact that there's such a white middle-class bias and, and, and middle-class and higher bias to policymaking around the, the, around the recommendations, at least, as well. Because we have some folks you know, we're having conversations about the sourdough bread that they're making and, Mm -hmm. you know, the loneliness that they're feeling that's very real. But then we have communities that, you know, are not able to access the PPE that they need, disproportionately forced to expose themselves to risk. So I think as a country, as a province, uh, we need to actually commit to the collection of race-based and socioeconomic data and actually use that to inform a health equity approach while also looking at our institutions and evaluating, like the police, whether or not they are actually designed or the appropriate mechanism to achieve the goal that they, they are intended to do. For me, it's very clear that that, that that isn't the case when it comes to the police.
One of the things that we have conversations about with leaders like yourself in the space that we're in is around the, the role of, of technology, of the larger startup community, or just in general, digital platforms and how they can help. We don't hear a lot about things like universal basic internet access. And that's something I see that as sort of a fundamental right, access to the internet. In the spaces you've been in and the conversations you've had, what level has that reached in terms of policy? I'm not sure what's happening in government at the moment, but it certainly isn't policy. I think uh, universal uh, access to internet is, is critical, but I think it's only a small part of the puzzle. I think we need to step back from fragmented approaches to really wicked social problems. Even when it comes to things like a universal basic income that you know many folks rally behind, you know, to me it's simple and it's a fragmented approach to a really big problem. What I think we need to be talking about is guaranteeing a, a certain quality of life. And then using that as the frame to say, yes, that includes universal access to the internet. That includes an income floor, but it also includes a, a, a guarantee of a basket of services. That's the kind of conversation that we should be having. Because I, I, I worry that we run the risk of, is it this or is it this or is it that? No, I think in a country as wealthy as this one, we should be able to uh, challenge our politicians to work harder and to support creating the type of infrastructure that allows people in one of the richest countries in the world to access uh, a, a certain quality of life uh, mm -hmm. that allows us to flourish. Thinking about these sort of wicked systemic issues and looking at things like quality of life and access as a starting point, I'm curious, where have you found technology helpful for you in, in your specific mission and maybe speak to some of the challenges you might have already faced with, with technology? You know, the most sophisticated types of technology that could be perhaps engaged to support solving some of the biggest problems we face are, are, are largely inaccessible because much of technology is, is a commodity. It's not focused on necessarily advancing the, the common good. Uh, that, that's not at the core of its purpose. So I think, you know, that's one thing I, I kind of wrestle with, especially running a nonprofit organization that is trying to do what to us seems like very complicated work around distributing. One of our initiatives is around distributing fresh product across the city of Toronto and every nook and cranny. And it's working with our drivers and all of, and the order system. But we're having to, to do a lot of that building ourselves and not only building ourselves, but also securing the funds to support that, evaluating different platforms and the like. So I think if, if more things were held in, in the commons that we could use to support the work that FoodShare and other organizations and other groups are doing to, to challenge kind of some of these wicked problems, that would be great. The other thing that I do recognize though also is that when I ran for office, one of the things I heard when I would go knocking on doors and having uh, incredible conversations with folks and a pretty common, some common reflection was that, um, 
you know, fewer and fewer people, fewer and fewer people were coming to the doors. Uh, people are busy. People are less trusting of someone showing up at their door. All those sorts of pieces. So, technology does, you know, play a, a, a bit of a role in helping convey information, particularly, you know, around so things like defunding the police. You know, I think that's been a move that's been part of the narrative for a long time for some, not so much the mainstream narrative. So I think technology has assisted that in, in a lot of ways. One, the recording of the, the violence that we've been seeing, more and more of this of the violence that we've been seeing have been captured by people, you know? So it allows more people to be shocked and horrified when it comes to the experiences that others are having all the time. Uh, and engage them in the conversation. And then it provides some access to that conversation around defunding the police and what that could look like mm -hmm. um, and the benefits of that much more accessible. So I think it's a complicated question around technology, but it's one that we need to be thinking about and, and, and again, rooting it in the common good. How can we ensure technology serves ensuring a decent quality of life for folks? I do want to take some time to just talk about one of your most significant successful programs, which is the Good Food Box. I've actually benefited from it, from having it delivered to my house. It's, it's a wonderful produce, so I, I would recommend that for all of our listeners. How has the, the program been going? So it's, it, it's kind of a funny piece. You know, we developed this social enterprise where it's, it serves many purposes. One, the Good Food Box. So if people search Food Share Good Food Box, uh, they'll be able to see a link and they can place an order right online. And we, we only launched the online portal, I think in 2019, January of 2019. So we recognize that food is a right in this country and has been such since 1976. So what we've done is we've said, you know, why is it that it's, it, it is also a commodity? Why is it that 4 million people are, are hungry in this country? Over 4 million people are food insecure. Well, it's because it's been made a commodity. So how a nonprofit with a social purpose to intervene in that to make a produce more affordable to everyone. And we know that 60% of people country that are food insecure are people that are working. We had been doing you know, about 200 deliveries a week across the city. It's fresh grade A produce uh, because that's what we feel people deserve. We don't take donated produce. We've gone from about 200 deliveries a week to uh, over 5,000. And you know, the 60 people that we have hired, we kind of taken a step back, looked at our work and said, okay, here's a pandemic. What can we do to support as many people as we can? Who's being left out? Saw that international students were, you know, their school were closing up, flights were uh, not possible for them to get back home. Um, so we said, so, and the jobs weren't there for them. So we've hired the bulk of the 60 new people that we've hired are, you know, international students or other folks who haven't been eligible for some of the federal aid programs that have been announced. So it's been, it's been really special to help as many folks as we have. And we've done this through awesome partnerships across the city with really great organizations. It is, it is really wonderful. And I think it's so creative how you've rolled out the platform and continue to drive engagement to it. I, I certainly would encourage everyone to get a good food box for themselves, but also to, to contribute to donate so that it enables another household to get one.
Well, Paul Taylor, thank you so much for your time. You definitely give us a lot to to think about. Thank you so much, Derek. Really appreciate you having me on today. Always love uh, chatting with you. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. This was a great conversation with Paul, and he left us with a lot to take away and really ask our leaders here in Canada to really think about as we're coming out of this third wave of the pandemic. I also want to thank, again, Paul Chin, who composed all the music you heard today. Paul is an unbelievable, incomparable producer and DJ and deserves a lot of credit and a lot of love. Thank you again for tuning in and hope to see you in the next episode.